2: keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from
3: our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get
0: your podcast. Hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified?
4: We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call four two three six 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 seven seven eight seven seven and tell us who we should check out it's the What Podcast Thanks in two thousand three indie rocker Ted Leo asked the question Where have all the rude boys gone? This song, which has a thin Lizzie rock and roll shuffle
3: Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.
1: In two thousand three, indie rocker Ted Leo asked the question, "Where have all the rude boys gone?" This song, which has a Thin Lizzy rock and roll shuffle, and an angry dissonance to it, became one of Ted's biggest songs of his career. Some people caught the ska references, but a lot didn't. Aside from the usage of the word rude boys, there's a ton of references to the specials, but you kind of have to be a fan to get it. He didn't just write the song because he loved two-tone ska, which he does. There's an interesting backstory that relates to the climate of indie rock in the 2000s and how it differed from the two-tone ska bands in late 70s England. He tells us about it on this week's episode of In Defense of Ska. I got to kind of
2: admit that like Ted Leo was never on my radar. I mean, I think I skewed more hardcore, which is funny because Ted started out in hardcore bands. But by the time I was introduced to his music, he, you know, it was it was what he's doing now,
1: which is, is interesting. Like he kind of gets gets lumped into sort of this indie punk category, but he's actually sort of different than the punk rock and the indie rock stuff happening in the 2000s when he's starting to get some, you know, when when people are really starting to take an interest in his music. Yeah. But, you know, I think like if you understand the kind of music that Ted's interested in, you know, he likes old ska, he likes old mod music. He likes, you know, a lot of the post-punk from the seventies, his music makes a lot of sense because he's taking these influences and he's making something new and interesting out of it.
2: Yeah. I think that if I had known Ted's influences back in the day, I probably would have appreciated his music a
1: lot more. And I think what's really interesting is that um, within that time, you know, I mean, he still makes music, don't get me wrong, but in that time when he was getting a lot of interest from critics and stuff, he wrote this song that's uh, basically about how amazing the specials are. I know. How weird is that? To have an indie rock golden boy writing a song about ska? Yeah. I don't know how many people picked up on that that weren't ska fans you have to know the names of the members of the specials and and you have to know what things mean. Definitely. I really love his uh, explanation about the song and the backstory, which we get into. You did something, I don't know, I'm not sure if anyone else has ever done it before. And that's, you you wrote a critically praised rock song (laughs) that's about ska. Sort of, yeah.
5: (laughs) I mean, quote unquote, in a way, yeah. Uh
1: Yeah. (laughs) So we're talking about uh, where have all the rude boys gone? Yeah. I mean obviously, um anybody who's remotely familiar with the specials the it's clear you're mentioning their names you're talking about the two tone dance beat. I'd love to hear just more um what inspired the song you wrote you released this in like what was it like two thousand five or two thousand six
5: no no uh it came out in o three came out in o three yeah um so i it, you know i I don't at that point in time there was you know really like we were we were kind of on that only like a year, year and a half between albums, um, schedule. So I, I probably didn't write it too long before 2003. Um, like we hadn't been playing it on the road that much, you know, when we went into the studio. In fact, like that's one of those situations where after you play, you know, you release a song and then after you play it for a while, you figure out how you can tighten it up and actually make it better. And like, we made it a, little bit of a shorter song like you know don't get too caught up in your own riffs if you're not like a doom you know (laughs) stoner sludge (laughs) band and like you know cut to the cut to the chase a little more quickly and um like about you know within a year it became a better song and then that was that was the first time in my life and i was like god damn it I wish we could go back and you know redo this song but it is what it is. It's a fine song. I'm not saying it's a bad song but yeah, it's a great uh, song. Thank you. But it's also
1: um yeah, let's speak a little bit about um where this song came from.
5: Uh okay, well, I mean, this is the this is the moment where I have to ask you, you know, like how far back do you want me to go or should I all the way back? Just speak a little bit of the moment
1: and and then and... No, no, let's let's go all the way back.
5: Well, okay. I'll I'll I'll, I'll meet you. Uh, let's go let's go ha- let's go far back but only um halfway uh as deep so then okay. we can go deeper right. if we want later but like i mean the thing is i you know like i grew up with ska like, i grew up i got into punk very young in, in the in the late 70s and i kind of detoured into hip-hop for a long time and then into hardcore in the 80s but ska and reggae were a, a constant for me um the whole time and Probably reggae more than ska to a degree, but but there was some uh, of. Um, it, can we just clarify some terms too? Like when we say, when we talk, when we're talking about the two tone scene, like are we are we talking about is that, are we calling that second wave now? You can call it second wave two tone ska,
1: whatever you want to call it. I think people will understand. Yeah. Okay.
5: Well, that because that was my stuff. I mean, like those that first specials record really, and and more specials like those are like. Uh, You know texts for me like those are identity forming records for me and um Mm -hmm. and they were really big uh throughout my life through all the you know all the phases that we all go through um you know you go through months every year like listening to mainly one kind of thing and then you ping pong to you know a different kind of thing but um you know i had a tape with um uh first specials record and the first class record on it and that just like the tape just went with me everywhere you know for 25 <laughs> 30 years or something and um and uh the thing about writing that song in particular at that time has a lot to do with the time because one of the things that I always appreciated about two-tone and um, again, you know, we all have gone through, I'm sure, you know, tons of different phases or at least like kind of pendulum swinging between where different circles on different Venn diagrams overlap, you know, and, and, um, you know, maybe I was, you know, really uh, like, Sartorially skinheady in 1989 and hanging out with sharp people and stuff. Um, but my politics uh went further and we were still really like crusty, lefty, you know, etc. Et and, you know, then maybe a few years later, like I started dressing more like that, you know, but the music I was listening to was still, you know, included the jam and the specials and et cetera. So like there there are these constants that that flow through, even as you kind of pendulum swing through the, through the boundaries of youth subcultures, you know? And, um, and uh, one of the things about two tone in particular, and I, and I, I I'm, I'm speaking specifically about two tone, um, is that it's not a music that, um it's not a scene and a music that like individuals uh over time or on and off kind of injected politics into the very concept of two tone from the beginning is an anti-racist concept you know and it was it was it was fundamental to um to how i understood those records and that scene and um and that was inspiring to me, you know to to go into it with this concept that like you don't always have to be leaning fully into but does kind of undergird and inform everything that you're doing um ideologically was really important to me and and that you know they uh really held to it, and the graphics of it expressed that and it was a it was a it was you know it was an environment that uh, an environment of ideas that you could um that you could live in you know while you listened to one of those records you know and then you know we find ourselves um in the early 2000s and um uh, you know in a lot of ways for uh, immediately in our world um things seemed pretty different <laughs> you know with the uh <laughs> with the twin towers that you know I grew up looking at like most days of my life like not not there you know and etc and us you know at in a more serious war footing than we'd been in uh since a few years after I was born um and part of that part of the reason I wanted to write that song was purely for the joy of celebrating what I loved about that scene and that music but part of it was a gauntlet as well to be honest with you and i mean you know i've probably been pretty maybe i've been coy about saying this in the past but i i'm old now <laughs> I <don't, laughs> and i don't feel like i need to be anymore but you know like the the um what passed for kind of the indie you know punk world at that point and obviously this is a broad brush and it doesn't doesn't include everybody so let's stipulate that but um i mean its response to everything that was going on in the world was was inadequate in my eyes and there was a lot of signal um a lot of signifying and and not a lot of signified you know there was a lot of um a lot of well there was a lot of posing frankly and there was a lot of everything that was you know got really big as like kind of indie new wave uh you know bring back the rock new york new york rock yeah like it's all a bunch of it was all a bunch of bullshit to me i mean there are plenty of songs from bands that i'm not going to name that i liked but like i kind of couldn't believe how quickly everybody just accepted this new you know like racist capitalist warmongering monstrosity that that we had pivoted to become and we're just like going along with it dancing on that in new york city you know like the like you know mm-hmm. fucking when when giuliani and and bush um uh started telling people that the way to help like the way to do things was to go shopping you know yeah. go out go return <laughs> to your lives you know like yeah that's what a lot of this music felt like to me it was like just shopping you know it's just like let's just go shopping and um and that is not me and I resented that I you know people who ostensibly came from and remained in and you know were um taking on the mantle of like you know bold new punk rockers of the 21st century were you know just doing coke and shopping and um the idea that uh that two-tone had formed in almost an exact opposite way to conditions specifically in britain at the time but you know, yeah. the the point was the opposite of shopping. The point was um, to start with an idea and see that idea through, and have that idea infuse every single thing that we do, right down to our artwork. And that idea is real, and it's about how the conditions that we're living in right now, that our art is going to reflect, affects people. And we're not always going to like sing specific words about that, but our energy, our spirit it's all going to be about that and and you know i at times i was on the road all the time back then and there were times when my band and i um felt a little bit adrift um amid the kind of you know ever-growing uh successful uh indie rock world and um this was a great it was a grounding uh flag to plant for me
1: there's definitely music from that era i like but you're you're right in the sense that a lot of it seemed like this sort of fashion this music fashion especially like this like return to rock and and stuff like that was like all peppered around you know this really superficial elements.
5: yeah and look i'm not I'm not suggesting there's not a place for like non-political music in the world or for even just for, you know, for fashion. Like I love it. I love it all. It's necessary. It's a part of the broader fabric of life. Like we all need it. Um, I just think that in particular, this was a time when um, people who claimed to be part of an alternative culture could have done more and through their art even, you know, I'm not even saying go, you know, tie yourself to a, I don't know, like a lamppost or, you know, go, to, you not even necessarily have to run in the streets and join a protest, but like through your, through their art, I feel like there could have been more done. Did the idea just come to you like, you know,
1: like what's, what's going on right yeah, now?
5: Yeah. So this, this is uh, rude boys, wherever the rude boys gone is one of two songs that I wrote entirely in my head while driving. And, <laughs> um, I, I remember, I think I was driving back. Like, I maybe had, I either was either visiting someone or I had done a solo show in Boston and I was driving back. And I just got this, the, the shuffle beat and that that riff. I just had that going through my head. And um, I, I just, like the whole drive, I, I the song just kind of came together pretty quickly um, in my brain. And honestly, it's one of those things that... Um, It's kind of like it is like it itself is a little little bit like brash and um, sassy and like tightrope walking, uh, potentially falling over into the realms of like self-righteousness or cheese, you know, that uh, under a lot of other circumstances, I might have pulled back from the whole thing and tried to like rework it into some more turgid, you know, (laughs) like set of lyrics that would take a lot more thought and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it just felt so good, like it felt like a real. I lo- like I loved the song while I was writing it. It just felt really good to me, and I was like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna overthink this one. <laughs> I'm gonna let it go, yeah. as is, yeah.
2: Well, and for the time period that it came out in, like ska was, I mean, like the overarching, thing term ska was deemed like a bad word, like regardless of its connection to to two tone.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean that there (laughs) that's what's really funny to me like sort of sitting back on the periphery of this big like at least from what i see on twitter you know big uh you know re-appreciation of ska going on right now because i mean the other thing about having written this song and then gone out and played it you know 250 nights a year for a few years is that i would generally get one of two reactions either people would be like are you fucking kidding me? You wrote a fucking song about ska. You wrote a song about the specials. Are you out of your mind? Like what? You like ska? You know? Or the other thing is that like people would be like, "Man, oh, I haven't listened to specials in so long. It's so great to be reminded of that. You know, like wow, I totally forgot about how great the specials were. Like that's a great. I'm so glad you wrote that song. I'm gonna go home and listen to the specials. You know." <laughs> and so there was this like dichotomy of, of opinion, obviously, but there were, it was really kind of funny how many people were like, fuck yeah, the specials. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that in a long time. Yes, absolutely. You know, it was nice.
1: It's also interesting. I don't know how much you got this, but like when I was like, uh, I was looking up some of the write-ups at the time and I saw like a pitchfork write-up because um, they deemed it like um, one of the best songs of 2003. Hmm. and no mention about the lyrics. Just like, wow, what a great riff. <laughs> right, right. Uh, one of the best rock songs you'll hear this year. Like, really, you're not going to comment on the fact that there's the word Rude Boy is in this the song title? That's <laughs> so fascinating.
5: Wouldn't know Rude Boy if, you, if, you're, if, if they were skanking on their face. Yeah.
1: <laughs> what you're talking about with Two-Tone, the politics of Two-Tone, how it's like baked in from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's really beautiful to me about Two-Tone and why it's it's like i don't feel like it's it's faded in a way you know its power is because you kind of said this like some of the stuff is so specific to that that era and and, and in fact listening to it as an american who grew up like a decade later like some of the references you know you're like what what are they even talking about <laughs> but the the major messages the anti racist messages the uh you know the anti um Thatcher Mm-hmm. Stuff the, the all that stuff it resonates, and you take that away whether or not you understand the the politics of 1970s England, and I think I think that's beautiful about it.
5: I agree, and I mean that that has everything to do with what great writers they were, songwriters, lyricists, you know, and, and etc. Um, you know, that is taking the two tone idea and actually like really making it work, you know, to to quote Tim Gunn, um, the. The, the ability to write songs that are both uh, anchored in their present moment and yet also transcend and, and uh, contain something that can be uh, you know appreciated down the line is kind of the goal, right? I mean, I feel like for most, yeah. most people who write songs, <laughs> yeah, and I think they, they definitely did it.
1: And I guess that's where like, true scenes exist from. It's like you, you're commenting on the moment. But yeah, it's like then then the stuff, the parts of it can carry on past the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And that's I guess that's exactly what you were lamenting, the idea that these artists in the post 9-11 era were not commenting on that specific moment at time and everything happening the way two-tone bands were.
5: To a degree, yes, and I mean, I think also like if I can really be uh, a- an old um, angry person about this, um, yeah, this is this is kind of my first toe dip into those waters uh, <laughs> publicly, an <laughs> angry old person on a podcast. Um, <laughs> but like you know, but also yes, that, and then also you know, I like like we said, like frankly, like I just felt like there were a lot of rich kids dilettantes kind of running around. Um as hobbyists, and they would all eventually you know leave for <laughs> other more lucrative capitalist jobs eventually and and that really bothered me
1: <laughs> I wonder how many people like I think about i was like in my early twenties when nine eleven happened. Mm-hmm. I wonder how many people almost missed <laughs> missed what was happening into our country in a way, you know, like yeah, with with what was happening with our reaction to 9-11 and and George W. Bush and the policies and the rhetoric and that I wonder I wonder like it's almost like they a lot of people here were in 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 this bliss this like 90s era bliss they were horrified by um the people the thousands of people that died in in 9-11 but they didn't like see past it or see the reaction and the, the horror of the reaction
5: yeah i mean i have a lot of sympathy for the fact that um our history and our and our daily news does not you know, does not really provide people with you know a fantastic uh i don't know you know perspective on history and our role in creating it and then thus dealing with it and thus you know how we are dealing with it and etc and um and certainly if you if you're a kid i give you get even more sympathy you know you grow up in a household where the media is largely controlled by uh, whoever's running the household uh and you know this is one of the things about I mean this is very cliche but I think it's 100% true is that this is one of the things about like crate digging punk rockers back in the days that you know it was zines that whole world like it that was um a way to get information and I mean literally pulling an out al- like an album of some kind out that that spoke to you about ideas that you weren't getting from school uh parent culture whatever you know church news etc um that was how you started that was that was what set your feet on the path sometimes you know you you grab an idea like you know i mean in 1985 uh, like i didn't know who the who the diggers were like i had to get that from a billy Bragg song you know <laughs> like i go and find out you know and um you know like there's stuff stuff like that you know and and um And so, like, I'm not castigating an entire generation of people for not being, you know, perfect little leftists all the time. What I am saying, though, is that there there are adults running around, you know, young adults running around, like, sort of putting on this, like, rebellious cloak and really just, you know, generating more cash and petroleum products for what's essentially like a war machine, you
1: know. Yeah. I mean, like I grew up, yeah, I mean, punk rock and ska for me were definitely a window into a different world because I grew up in a very conservative family, religious family, and discovering the music and then the, the scene, the people in the scene and the bands, that was to me was definitely a window into a different way of thinking. I mean, a hundred percent. Yeah.
5: Yeah. I mean, look, we all go, you know, this is, I mean, this is a little off topic, but, We all, I mean, we have to evolve. We all have to evolve. Like, I grew up in an old school Irish-Italian Catholic family, North Jersey, some of my family's from Brooklyn. Like, you know, there wasn't a lot, (laughs) there wasn't, nobody was really thrilled with, like, gay rights, for example, you know, in the Catholic church at that time. Like, that took a while for me as a kid in the 70s to, and then into the 80s as a teenager to, learn about you know like you weren't you weren't going to learn about that you it was suppressed like anything that like if you were gay in the community that your identity was suppressed you know you weren't even talked about half the time um you can't get out of that on your own usually you you know you need something to 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 come in and open a window for you to to see like a different kind of light through and i mean i'm very glad and I, and I, again i think this is like why i wanted to kind of write this like celebratory tribute to two tone and the specials because they really like you know they were a window and they held it open and i think like you said in terms of a lot of it re- continuing to resonate forward like it remains open i mean i i i I can't imagine a kid anywhere who hasn't been exposed to um a lot of uh anti racist thought or you know um some of the kind of uh um, you know uh, pro uh the uh, uh well the anti-austerity measures in Britain at the time, which, like, you're not going to, again, like, you're not going to know the exact context about this and that, but it's still kind of, like, it's going on here today, and these things might resonate if you happen to stumble upon Ghost Town or, you know, any number of other, like, early special songs that will could just blow your mind, you know, and, and actually give you a way to to begin to reorder your thinking.
1: So the song has, um, you know, you mention a lot of the members by name. Uh, you you throw in some song titles. Was that part of your original, like while you were driving and thinking of it? Was that part of the process, or did that come in sort of a later version of working on this song?
5: Yeah, no this this was a really weird, rare, like whole cloth one sitting without even a guitar or you know a piano in front of me songwriting like it 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 all came together in one three and a half hour drive um wow yeah i it, it's ve- very very i mean you know that kind of lightning has struck like maybe once or twice more <laughs> in my life and it's really a you a, a pretty unique an almost actually unique you know event
2: how did you hold that all in your head while you're driving
5: oh oh uh, all right well okay here's the truth of matter. Is okay so I had, a, I used to have a, you know, before like, uh, smartphones, I ca- had a little, uh, micro cassette recorder. Oh, okay. You know, that I would like carry around with me, um, f- for whatever, like if I'm sitting in a dressing room and want to try and work on a new song or, or literally like this thing pops into my head and I don't want to forget the riff, like just hum it right. into the little recorder. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I'm so glad to have a smartphone for now. The little voice memos app, because I always wanted to have one of those little, Tape deck things. Whenever I'd try to get one, it would invariably break or <laughs> not work when you
1: needed it. So, in the video, there's um, a skeleton on a piano, uh-huh. kind of in the background. That's from the cover of a Ghost Town single, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there? Any, that's the only one I noticed. Was there any other little e- Easter eggs in the video? Uh,
5: I think that's the only specific Easter egg. I'm trying to run through the video in my head now. I feel like the um, some of the framing of the of the uh spots where like the zombies pop up um had some references to like the back cover um of uh, of uh more specials where they're standing by the boat okay yeah i mean yeah i don't have this in front of me but yes I, i there were there were a couple yeah that was the only like ultra specific reference yeah
3: thanks
1: i would love to hear about your your discovery of two-tone like when did that happen and, and how did you come across this music because it wasn't two-tone was never mainstream popular music
5: that's true but i i i think this is one of those ways in which wow i'm re- i am like really settling into um crusty old man mode there you go. <laughs> because this is this is one of those ways in which i i do think that things were a little different back then like you you're right that it wasn't hugely popular but in the 80s especially mid 80s ska was known you know like it, it was around like it was in the air um it would it would show up in john hughes movies right like i think um there was a special song in like one of his movies, and everybody was dancing to it. But it was just one of those things where even some of the bigger, well, like even the Go Go's, for example, like ska adjacent, you know, like you. There was just this something that you understood that it it was part of the mix. So, um, I, I, just like a, a little anecdote, like I, I, um, for a couple of years when I was in high school, a friend of mine and I had a little side hustle, DJing, school dance, actual school dances, you know, like not at clubs or anything. But we somehow got um, a friend of ours who got us like hired at their high school. And then we got hired at a couple of other school dances in the area because it went well. And what I always used to do was um, I would start with uh, also Sprach Zarathustra, the 2001 space odyssey theme you know boom boom <laughs> boom, boom <laughs> bah, bah, and like you know the, i make the lights would be out and everything and then you know by the end it's like bah,
2: bah, 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 bah.
5: and it's like it's just long enough to make people start to get really annoyed you know like when's the music gonna start and then i would always kick in with um do the dog and so it's like boom, boom boom and the fucking dance floor would go ape shit and like and like most of these people did not i'm guarantee you like most of them did not necessarily know who the specials were but it was just like there was a little something different back then where like you would dance to music that you hadn't heard before for one thing and for another thing something particularly about ska was there was it was just like you know mistily known or like gelatinously known like kind of you know (laughs) floating in and around everything um it was recognizable and and if the song was hot enough like do the dog you know people would dance to it and um yeah i don't know that was a little bit of a field from your question i'm sorry
1: but yeah it's my it's kind of my well you correct me if i'm wrong because i'm you know i was a kid in the 80s but my understanding of the 80s is that the ska was around ska was around, like you said, but it was sort of like engulfed in the larger umbrella of New Wave. And people by and large maybe didn't really understand what ska was or where it came from. Whereas in England, the the individual components that made up two-tone ska were better known. So people kind of understood, oh, this is um they're taking old Jamaican music and then they're mixing punk and they're creating this third thing. Yeah. But to, to, to a mainstream normal U S kid in the, in the eighties who didn't have any kind of education or didn't dig into it. It's like, Oh, this is, um, this is a new wave song. This is just how this particular new way, new wave song sounds. And there's also Devo and there's also, you know, the go-go's like, and so I don't know that it's like, Oh, this is like Jamaican rooted music called ska.
5: I think you're absolutely right about that. And I, I had not thought that out, you know, to the end that you just thought it out to, but that as you were saying that, it makes perfect sense to me. I think you're right. I think that, yeah, ska, sure, again, like, was known. It was understood. Like, even the specials were a relatively big band in in the, mm-hmm. you know, alt world in the in the 80s in America. But I think you're probably right that it was not Understood as a continuation of, yeah, these with its, you know, Jamaican origins and, and, and et cetera, and, or, and it's, you know, American origins for that, and et cetera, et cetera. Like, I, I i do think that it was probably, you know, if there was a shuffle, if they had shuffle back then, you know, they could have gone from talk, talk, all you do to me is talk, talk, to the specials do the dog, to, as you said, like Devo or the Go Go's. And it wouldn't necessarily have, um, nobody would have been like riding the minor bumps on that like you know small genre shifting roller coaster uh, very
4: very
1: hard yeah. did you have somebody explain it to you or did you just dig into it on your own like when oh, i really like this mm. i want to learn more about this and then that's when you kind of understood it as a sub as its own genre
5: i probably didn't have any kind of moment in either of like a moment in either of those things. I think that it's just process, you know, I, I, um, I loved reggae. I really, really loved reggae and reggae was probably even more important to me. And, um, I understood that connection, certainly. I mean, it's hard to miss, you know, (laughs) um, but, um, uh, I think that, well, you know, it's interesting though, because I think that, Having had, you know, all the, like, there were, like, tons and tons of bootlegs of all the early uh, whalers stuff around back then. So, you know, if you were a high school kid in the 80s, like, you probably got legend, Bob Marley legend first, or whatever, you know, <laughs> like, you know, Kaya or something. And um, and if you had the yen to explore, you would... uh can the, the what you know the, the yearning to explore you would um explore and maybe you'd go backwards um and you'd find these bootlegs and they would have these like blue beat you know what i can now what i now have the language for um but you know which was essentially like ska one cup of coffee and you know um and at the time i think that the the thing that i the connection that i made in my brain more was to that kind of like fats domino like upbeat piano stuff like boom da boom da dun da dun da da, da, dun I found my thrill on Blueberry Hill you know like that was where the connection was in my head because they were more contemporaneous um also um Uh, then you know then yeah then eventually I think just you know maybe someone comes and tells you a thing or maybe you're just the kind of person who you know finds uh, uh, cut and mix, or you know, one of those like Dick Hebdige books that you know <laughs> that talks about the history of all this, and you start putting the pieces together. Um, uh, you know, or you, ju- you know, are you are li- you hear and see the video for a message to you, Rudy, which probably was my first introduction to the specials, and um, and if you've already seen, you know. Pictures, for example, of like the early whalers. You're like, oh, this looks like that. <laughs> this, yeah, they've got the same pants on. You know, <laughs> it's like, and it, the music sounds similar too. Um, yeah, and then you you just start pulling those threads and and see where they take you. Oh, you grew up in New York? Uh, New New Jersey, right outside of New York. Yeah.
1: When did you move to New York? Because I know in the late '80s you were. um you know, you fronted the um, hardcore band uh, Citizen Arrest. Mm-hmm. So when did when did you make that move over to
5: New York? I don't... You know what? I didn't actually, like, live full-time in New York until the, er- oh, wow. the okay. early 2000s. Because, I mean, it was like... The thing is, the Citizen's Arrest was h- half Jersey, one quarter Manhattan, and one quarter Brooklyn. Like, there was no you know the part of jersey that i lived in it was not you know like new york was our scene that was where we went to see shows and play in bands and stuff so it wasn't like there was a big like i'm gonna move across that river someday grandpa you know it was just like (laughs) that's where you know it was right there there was a bus stop right in front of my house you know and i i could walk to the path train you know so walk to the the subway they went to newark uh penn station and get on the path train there if i wanted to and um it was all uh you know it's all a pretty integrated hub of public transportation and um and etc so that 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 wasn't really uh, certainly when i was especially when i was a kid i mean when i was in citizen's arrest i was actually going to college in indiana so i was mostly living out there and um Yeah. But the, but like, we actually, I mean, we are, we were in, if you want to really make a distinction, like we were probably, even though we were more part of the New York scene, I mean, we practiced in Jersey at our drummer's house. We were, we spent a lot, probably spent a lot more time together actually in Jersey.
1: Were you connected or, or aware of any like local ska scene in New York or New Jersey?
5: Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I mean, Connected to, no. Um, that This is, like, at that point in time in the 80s, like, I wish I had been, to be honest with you, because some of those bands that were around, like, another another real, you know, important record for me was the um, uh, New York Beat Hit and Run comp. You know that record? Yeah, that's, like, the first comp, first American comp ever made. Like, 86, 85, 86. something like that? Yeah, 86. 85, 86?
1: Yeah.
5: I mean, yeah, the bands that were on that were around and we loved them but we were young we were younger you know like we weren't they were like five six years older than us which when you're a teenager is like a lot older than you you know Yeah. they were like drinking you know age and we weren't you know um and uh but all those bands um uh urban blight obviously the toasters um the the you know the boilers yeah were my ch- absolute shit Back then, boilers are amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there was some stuff in Jersey. There was a band from more like the Philly area um, that I only saw once or twice. It was rare that I would go down to City Gardens in Trenton, but I but they played there a lot, and I saw them it was called Scram. You ever hear them?
1: Mm. That name sounds familiar. Yeah. They're
5: good. They weren't they weren't like straight ska, but they were like but they. They were um, kind of like reggae punk ska, um, but like mod mod dudes who were doing like reggae, reggae punk. Um, they were, uh, yeah, they were great. Uh, New York citizens um, as you get on into the eighties. Uh, yeah, I loved all those bands and it was, you know, they would do these big shows like the Super Bowl of hardcore style shows at the Ritz where there'd be like, you know, five or six, seven, amazing ska bands you know fishbone fishbone played all the time back then fishbone came through new york all the time back then and were hands down like remain one of my favorite bands of all time yeah i mean seeing fishbone before my
1: time i wish i could go back in time but seeing fishbone in like that sort of 86 to 88 period i can i can imagine that would be the pinnacle of the best band
5: it was incredible yeah the 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 you know the the uh Party at Ground Zero EP, uh um what's the next one though with in the air on? In Your Face. Yeah, in your face and and uh Truth and Soul. Like the, their touring around those records was like relentless and they were amazing. It's just incredible. I saw the first time I saw them was at the, this place called the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey. And I think this was probably eighty six. Um they were opening up for the red hot chili peppers and we went we I didn't wasn't really familiar with the chili peppers at, at that point in time. Like they had that they had a video for Real Men Don't Shoot Coyotes or Real Men Don't Kill Coyotes, which I had seen and I was like, Oh, that's interesting, like funk punk. Huh. But is it it wasn't super my thing, you know. Mm-hmm. We we went to see Fishbone and you know not realizing how huge the the chili peppers were getting it was a that was a wild show cuz i was just like wait these people aren't all here for Fishbones. like <laughs> what's wrong with them you know it was like
1: just incredible do you remember anything about fishbone's performance or you know energy or any of that
5: from that show uh Oh no not specifically <laughs> to tell you the truth um i i do remember that like we it was a like a last minute thing and the cheap tickets that we could get were like way up at the back of the balcony so <laughs> i was watching them from pretty far away but um but i i mean i'd seen them plenty of other times uh yeah especially at the ritz in, in new york and i mean it i mean it was it was everything you imagine and probably have seen on YouTube now, you know, just with like the actual sweat from Angela, <laughs> you know, shirtless, <laughs> you know, getting on you, you know, it was great. So, um when did you did
1: you start Citizens Arrest, or were you like somebody that joined the band?
5: I joined the band. They were in a band. um They had a, th- three of the members had a band with another person called True Colors, also a hardcore also a hardcore band. If you couldn't guess you know, by the name. um uh but yeah a little more on the like youth core like you know posse posse crew tip and then uh there was a store there was actually a store in montclair new jersey called two-tone and it was like the punk equivalent of a head shop back then you know where it was like they had some records like some different hair dyes like some spike belts You know, it was mostly like a bunch of stickers, but it was mostly just a place to hang out where like punk kids would hang out, and it was run by this uh, this older woman named Roma, who, you know, that seemed like I was like, man, she must have been there like at the genesis of punk, and and which seemed ancient to me, but of course at the time, like we're talking like ten years ago, (laughs) so yeah, if that, you know, so like. I'm sure she was like 20 years younger then than I am now, you know, but um, but uh, yeah, but it it was she would just like let people hang out, you know. And and, um, I met the then drummer Daryl there and uh, he actually just lived up the street and, you know, we we hit it off. He was a sharp guy at that point in time and we had a lot in common and uh, we just started like writing songs together. And the band that had been True Colors, like one of them left, and so it just kind of morphed into Citizens Arrest.
2: What led you to playing hardcore instead of ska? Uh,
5: I mean, honestly, if Darrell had been in a ska band, like in not a, if he'd been writing ska songs uh, and asked me to join him, it, it might have been a ska band, you know. Yes. Like it, I would I mean, I was into hardcore too, you know. That was my that was my sure. scene. The the I was. As a scene, I was more into the hardcore scene than the ska scene at that point in time, um, so it just made sense. But I would have, I would have done ska <laughs> if that had been on. If that's what was on if the that table, that had been yeah. on the table. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Citizens Arrest, you guys would play CBGBs. No, CA never played CBGBs. Um, oh, oh yeah. okay. Uh, no, the we our whole scene had had moved away from CB's at that point in time. Um, there were other clubs, uh, other punk, like punker clubs that we were associating with, um, the, the biggest, well, not biggest physically, but the best known at this point being ABC no Rio, uh, which at that point in time was shows literally happened just in the basement, you know, which was full of broken, uh, cinder blocks and etc i mean it was a very different lower east side back then than it is now um and uh yeah we played some of our first shows played like uh fast lanes in asbury park new jersey uh this place called downtown beirut which was a good good old club in new york uh abc no rio all the time and then kind of just other you know, random places that would have us. There was a pretty good squat music scene back then. Um, Squat or Rot was a squat that had a lot of shows and and, uh, an outdoor one in the summer called Squat the Lot. Was there any
1: um, bands that you were like, you guys were friends with or played with frequently?
5: Uh, Yeah, I mean, that, the whole scene that kind of became, that kind of congealed as the 90s ABC No Rio scene were our, those were our friends, our like tight people. Um uh, Rorschach, Born Against. Daryl also actually played drums in Born Against at first. Um uh my other band, Animal Crackers, which was with one of the other guys from Citizens Arrest. Yeah. And then there were there were other um there were other New York bands that we played with a lot, um, and enjoyed and really liked hanging out with, but like weren't part of our like immediate, like super tight click. Like um there was well, I'm trying to think of who we actually, actually played <laughs> more, played more with back then, because I, you know, even now as I think about it, like I guess you know, Animal Crackers played more like kind of locally shows, but Systems Arrest very quickly wound up being on shows with touring bands more. So, yeah, it would be other like, and as and as I when I left the band, which was very like only within a, like less than two years, you know they. They became the band that they're best known for being they became they became their final form you know they became the best the best version of themselves um that couldn't have happened while I was singing because like I can scream, but not in the way that that band needed a screamer you know and um and I prefer to sing so <laughs> like it just wouldn't have wouldn't have quite turned out the same way but um, but they got, yeah, they got, I mean, the, uh, they really struck, uh, something, you know, when they, when Daryl, the drummer moved up to vocals and they got a new drummer, this guy, Pat, and and they became this much more kind of fast, intricate, um, brutal, brutal band. Like they, they weren't, uh, they weren't an eighties hardcore band anymore, you know, they kind of became their own thing. I see
0: We'll be right back after this. Hey, everybody! It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA plus, and they include camping. Russ, how would people get qualified?
4: We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup.
3: Call 423 667 four two three six six seven seven eight seven seven and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.
1: So um, when on Twitter, when Scott or Na asked you if you like Scott, yeah. you, um, your response was that you said that you, when you left Citizens Arrest, I think you, you said you went back to Indiana for a bit and then you returned. And then a um, friend of yours said, like, looked at you and said, oh, so you really are a rude boy, huh?
5: Oh, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i was mad at myself for even responding to that tweet like it was like late enough at night that i was like oh i'm gonna tell this person what for but i was really like i should not have even responded but that is a true story actually yeah i came back and went to a show and um i get i think i was wearing some like black and white top that looked with like you know with like peg leg pants that you know, looked a lot of, a little out of place in the, you know, in the scene that had, what the scene had become in my, uh, in my absence. It was a lot, a lot, uh, shaggier <laughs> at that point in time. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, Freddie Alva who runs War Dance Records, um, said to me, man, you really are a rude boy, huh? <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm really glad that you responded to Scar. And all. Oh, good. Okay, <laughs> he's it's a really good
5: dude. So, yeah, I just was like, I you know, not knowing anything about it at that point, I wasn't sure like what the trolling level was, and I was just like, man, if this person doesn't know, I'm not going to tell them, you know. But then I told them anyway.
1: <laughs> so we're, I mean, you know, based off that specific story, were you going more into Scott at that point, or more into? that stuff
5: no no i wasn't um i mean at that point by that point in time i had started um my band chisel which was more mod uh oriented yeah songwriting wise um but you know it just is a style that i, I mean to this day like again like we all bounce back and forth between feeling more comfortable looking a certain way on a certain day but sartorially Like, the comfort zone that I come back to is kind of like, you know, hard mod, like, skinhead, rude boy kind of crossover zone. Um, And that's just where I was right then, you know. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. So, Chisel starts um early 90s and that goes on for like eight or nine years right
5: yeah chisel actually started in 89 it was concurrent it was concurrent with citizens arrest um but it would but it was more like a side thing you know it's just like it actually started as just a two-piece myself and the drummer john and it was really um while we both had these other things going on it was it was it was actually a way for us to kind of uh I mean I I'm going to say goof around but I don't mean that like we were you know not sort of taking it seriously but it was a way for us to um goof around on our older influences you know so we we were like when we we start we started um as most bands do you know just by like playing a few covers and it, we did like wire songs and Jam songs and Gang of Four and Mission of Burma and um and then you know once I got more confident with my guitar playing and my actual songwriting I started you know we started writing our own songs but um but yeah it 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 took a few years for us to really get going um as as a solid unit that actually felt like we wanted to you know be a band first and foremost so I think by Certainly by 93, we were doing that. It was a primary project at some point then? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. C- certainly, yeah. I, I want to say probably earlier than 93, but I, I was also doing stuff back in New York. Like, Citizens Arrest also broke up, you know, um, in like 91 or something, and myself and some of those guys formed another band called Hell No, and there was a lot, excuse me, there was a lot going on, but um, but Chisel really became our primary focus. Oh, well, duh. <laughs> it Became our primary focus when we all moved to DC, which is where our drummer was from. Um and decided, you know, the our bass player was from Indiana and um w- you know, we were we were all actually thinking about moving to Chicago, but uh John, our drummer got um a job with Amnesty back in DC and for me, I was, you know, I was leaving anyway to go somewhere else so i was like yeah sure i'll move to dc why not i had friends there and bands and yeah that's when we really kind of decided to try to be a band and not much else for a while chisel to me sounds like the
1: the influences and stuff that i you know the, the kind of stuff that you have been doing for the last few decades it feels like really start to see it come together and chisel does that really feel to you like where you're starting to like your, your style of songwriting, your influences are more like coming together in the way that makes sense for you with that band.
5: Yeah. I think I learned, um, you know, through, through years of, of kind of stabbing around, um, where, you know, where my sharpest, uh, stab to extend a really weird metaphor. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) um, Uh, you know, um, what direction that, that, that worked in and, and what direction was like, you know, most satisfying to me again, as I've said a million times, like we all, we all, we, there's a lot of wiggle room. We all move around within these, you know, genre confines or whatever. But, but I do think that it was during, um, yeah, it was during the, the early nineties uh, with chisel that I started to figure out how to, how to write songs that were, uh, To me, more like the songs that I was walking around singing to myself, you know, that I had heard 10, 15 years previous. And and I enjoyed that. So I leaned into it. (laughs) So just kind of like based off of what you
1: said, like five minutes ago, though, the initial approach to it was to be like, well, this isn't really serious. So let's just kind of just do whatever we feel like doing. So was that attitude of like, of the initial attitude of, of being sort of like, this is fun. Did that, did that feel like it kind of opened the gate for you to like allow that to come together?
5: I, I, I actually am going to, um, am going to push back on that a little bit because I, what I, while I, while I did say that like we were goofing around on it and it wasn't like a primary concern it wasn't just about like having fun and doing whatever we wanted to. Like it actually was about let's revisit some of these older influences that like all of our friends' bands aren't playing or thinking about or singing about or listening to anymore, you know? Um, So there, there was like a kind of purposeful look back. um, And that doing that was fun and loose for us, you know? And I think doing that in a fun and loose way for a minute, um, yeah, I mean, literally, like there are things when you play guitar, when you write songs, like sometimes you literally just have to like get your hand moving in a certain way, you know, like you learn, you learn what like shifting from one chord to this other chord that you don't usually go to sounds like. And all of a sudden you have 14 different new options of like how to write a song, you know, and, um, it was I think it was that kind of thing with me, like um doing in most of the other bands that I was playing in up to that point, I had been just singing with hell no, I was just playing guitar, and i think and that was a really dissonant um like you know metally hardcore band, and uh that that helped me become a better guitar player in a lot of ways i was thinking about new ways to play, you know at the same time, also going back and thinking about you know uh these just these fast changes of simpler chords but oh are they so simple like uh, you know on wire's pink flag album or something um got my hand moving around you know it got my it got my brain moving around patterns you know and understanding how uh these sounds crashing into each other uh can be built you know and don't have to um don't have to always just crash into each other because sometimes the punk with the punk aesthetic or you know with a lot of aesthetics you know the the idea is that if you're not just really being free and kind of letting letting things happen you're somehow like not being a true artist you know um but tools are tools and you know you don't you don't build a house by (laughs) by just like throwing nails at wood, you know, (laughs) hoping that like hoping that something's gonna stand up, you know, like I mean you can you might wind up with something cool, some cool, weird new shelter (laughs) and that would be great, you know? Um, but like but there are there are ways that, you know, you can learn to do it and you and then you find your own voice within that. You know, that that's that's the thing. Like I think that sometimes these kind of exercisey things that are quote unquote just for fun, um it's almost like training you don't know, you don't know you're doing, you know, and then you sit down to write your own song and all of a sudden you have all this new vocabulary and yeah.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, when I, when I started out as a writer, cause I was very interested in fiction for a decade before I got into nonfiction. Um, yeah. Just like you, you sit around and like, you, I just read a book. I read like a book by Bukowski and then I write a story that's like, I'm just ripping him off. I'm just copying his voice, and you kind of do this, and then eventually you start to find a voice that actually sounds like yourself, but you're kind of taking these elements from these different things. Right. Um, and then music's the same way. You kind of you go in, you you copy really deeply, just almost m- mimicry, and then yeah, you kind of are left with some strands of that um, after after you've kind of gone through that phase of just overtly copying it.
5: Yeah. Yeah. And then also, you know, again, like you, I mean, absolutely. Like, you, well, even going back to like, just talking about where have all the Rude Boys gone? Like the version that's on the album um, is to me now, like it's too long. It's too long because I was not thinking like critically about my own stuff. I was just vibing, you know, I was just like vibing, on the, <laughs> vibing on the riff. And like, yeah. it goes on, it goes on a, a couple times too long. Every time I play it, to my ears now, you know. Um and that was just like a flow state for me. But it's cool. Like people like the song. I like the song. Like I'm glad that it I'm glad that it came out that the way that it did, you know, etc. At the same time, uh you know, you 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 do learn again even like what how your own brain like reacts to this stuff and you and you learn uh that you know, even though I'm vibing on this like 10 times in a row now, I know that the payoff when I get to part C for me, the singer, the player, the writer, like I'm not even thinking about the audience. I'm just saying for me, is going to feel so much better if I like cut this part a little bit short. You know, you learn these 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 form uh, um, these blueprints, these uh, I don't know, what would you call them from writing? Um, I just think of them as
1: uh, either style or voice. Yeah, it depends. It depends because I mean, they actually. I mean, they talk about this really specifically in writing. There is voice, and that's the the, the way your words sound. Mm-hmm. And then their style is kind of the structure and the organization of the sentence.
5: I guess what I'm saying is you can find, and, and I'm not saying you have to do this. Like I never went to music school, you know, so I didn't. I didn't go that far as to actually have any formal training. But, but I, but I am saying that you can. You can find your voice and your style by playing with form. You know, there are there are forms and structures that are there. And at this point in history, I think it's a little, um, I think there's a little hubris at play if you don't think that they, they've they lasted as long as they have for a reason. You know, <laughs> like, they work. You know, the, there's a reason that, like, verse, chorus, you know, stuff kind of kind of works um and uh again like doesn't always have to be that way but you if you play with the if you learn the forms and then you play with the forms you can find your own voice and style either within or jumping off from the forms if that's the way you want to do it if that's the way you want to do it
1: so i was just looking through some footage of chisel um and yeah, like, definitely saw like live footage, very, very like punk DIY stuff. Is that Was that kind of the space you occupied when you went on tour as as that band?
5: Yeah, I mean, all the way to the end. Um, I was just talking with Adam uh, about some of that earlier, like a, a year or two ago. Someone uploaded a, a bunch of um, DIY stuff from the late 90s, like punk space DIY stuff. And there are a number of chisel sets in there. And that was toward the like that was toward the end of our trajectory. We had, you know, we were still playing those spaces. You know, we we would we had a um, we would we would rarely like headline a a bigger club on our own. Although there were the you know there were those like we were we sort of had a rule where like we had to we had to sell out a place twice before we would like move up to the next size venue you know <laughs> a little <laughs> arbitrary but it kind of was nice you know it meant that you really it meant that that move was really that was the thing to do at that time you know um and by the end we were you know we were feeling like smaller clubs like brownies in new york um the old 930 in, in dc or the or the shortened version of the new 930 in dc because they they can move the stage to decrease capacity um but uh uh black cat you know in dc etc but at the same time we would go yeah we would tour and we'd play yeah we'd play um you know we'd play uh, again just like the middle east or in boston or the tune in in new haven connecticut and then we'd play like a house show in jersey or michigan you know it was it was always um we always kept our feet in that world did you have a preference for those um, types of shows or was it just like a, Hmm.
1: a reliable part of the scene for your band, you know, in terms of
5: like filling in dates and stuff? Well, I don't know that I could answer yes to either of those options because, uh, you know, my initial reaction is to say like when a house show is, great it's the greatest you know like when a when a super packed like kids in your face no stage house show is great it's the greatest and and it is but that said like you know especially at least at this point in time i've also had shows on big stages with you know huge monitors and stuff that have felt just as good so it's tough to say that i have a that i have a preference i mean um back then i probably didn't really have a preference or although i probably would have leaned more toward the let's i'd rather have a great house show than a you know mediocre club show i mean i guess even as i'm saying that like of course you <laughs> like yeah. who would who wouldn't you know <laughs> but um but you know but you know now there are now it's like these days and i'll i absolutely still play you know, DIY spaces and stuff every now and then. Um, I'm, my only thing is like, can I just have like a semi private room where I can like change my guitar strings, like quietly warm up, <laughs> maybe a bathroom that not everybody here is using, you know, <laughs> like that. I then I'm good.
2: So you're saying you would do a house show if it was offered right now.
5: Email. You got my email.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I'll hit you
2: up next time you come through.
1: So you need the master bedroom with the, um, to yourself with the bathroom <laughs> and then you're good to go.
2: <laughs> so during that time period when you were playing those kind of more DIY spaces, were there any times when you ended up playing with those like third wave ska bands?
5: Ah yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Who do you remember playing with? Well, so there were a number of bands who we were who we mm-hmm. were friendly with. You know, in D C obviously the Pie Tasters were there and, mm-hmm. and you know, they're great and were really sweet and they they always really were very kind to us and, you know, responded to the modness of what we were doing. <laughs> you know, whereas a lot of other people who were just like, that's eh, pop punk. Um uh <laughs> but um <laughs> but uh you know, in New England we got in deep with um a lot of the ska bands up here, Johnny Too Bad, um jc super ska and some mod some mod bands too like it was like the push kings were around in the late 90s um and yeah we wound up um that was always like for me that was always like really cool and felt like vindication when we would play somewhere where i like where we didn't live or have a ton of friends and you know kids in parkas and scooters would show up that i was just like yes this is great you know it's amazing and that that would happen a lot in new england especially in connecticut um when moon records had moved to columbia south carolina uh which i hadn't realized had happened all of a sudden we started mod people started showing up at our shows in columbia south carolina and i was like i love columbia south carolina you know I was like it's great <laughs>
1: So in general, though, like, you know, like like you were just making that distinction between like 90s pop punk and the the mod elements. Who did you feel like were your sort of contemporaries that were in the similar vein of what you were doing that you would, you know, that you felt like you were or did you feel maybe you didn't feel that way?
5: I, I don't feel like we I don't feel like we had too many. Um, I feel like we had more in common. I, I feel like we had a lot of ideological things in common with what. Our contemporaries in DC were doing, you know. I mean, I I lived with everybody in Nation of Ulysses in the makeup for many many years, and and yeah, we played great bands. We played with them all the time, and and that made sense, you know. They were they were doing a more like obviously like R and B, you know, jumping off from mod kind of thing. Um, But that always worked really well, and we had a lot of fun together. Um, over the years um but there weren't a lot of people who were being as explicitly mod as we were (laughs) during that period of time um and that's why it was so exciting when we would run into these like new england ska bands who were who, who like were looking really mod at the time uh it was yeah that was a blast and and again like really felt like sort of sort of vindication and scene you know um but most of the time you know we would play bills that were with again if it was like you know a festival you know vfw hall festival in michigan or a house in new jersey it would usually be hardcore bands um huh and if it was some you know if it was a club tour it would usually be a uh, like, full-on indie rock band. You know, we we toured a lot with, we toured with Velocity Girl back then. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. One. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that was actually great. Like, we, we, some of, one of the funnest tours I have ever done was with Velocity Girl and this band from Boston called Fuzzy, who, you know, were just great, like, indie pop band. Um, and that all worked as well. I mean, I think we were pretty lucky in that, um, we would go into these like indie rock spaces, and people would be like, oh, they're full of lightning and energy and you know melody and punk <laughs> rock," you know. And then we'd go into these hardcore spaces, and people would be like, "Oh, it's like yeah, melo- its a melodic and you know mid tempo." <laughs> and we, <laughs> but but uh, but you know but like but on, on both ends of the spectrum, like people sort of got what we were doing, and uh, you know didn't ISIS out <laughs> so you're taking a lot of these influences from you know
1: like 70s bands mm-hmm. um in the 90s in in the 2000s there becomes this whole like post-punk movement right a revival right but it's very much like aimed at being explicit and aimed at being retro yeah um but i don't get that vibe at all from chisel and, and not from you know the pharmacist either
5: i'm very glad to hear you say that Though that's, <laughs> that was probably a big part of our you know um of our commercial failure was you know that we you know we didn't we didn't do that <laughs> and i mean we, you're talking about you know the beginning of i mean look everybody loves thin lizzie these days but that's another one with the specials where they're like one of my favorite bands of all time and i'm telling you right now like when people would talk about the shuffle beat songs that I was writing in the early two thousands and I would have to explain thin Lizzie to them, it was just like blank faces everywhere. <laughs> and, you know, and, and yeah, it's a, we're in a, we're in a different time, but, but one of my, you know, one of the things that I never wanted to do was to be too, uh too retro, you know, or too, um unless it was like, an explicit gesture like for the fun of it like with a wink and a nod I never wanted to gesture too broadly you know to the point where it didn't feel like like I was actually writing my own song
1: (laughs) yeah yeah
5: I mean going retro is a is a
1: it's a tough thing because what what if you're doing something retro that's cool right now I mean you're in danger of it being uncool in like three years yeah and so if you're doing something that's not so over then you have more opportunity to for it to last longer and not feel outdated you know five ten years down the road right and also you know like i'm
5: being again like i'm being a little crabby about this like i mean come on like, <laughs> let's let's be honest like there are also like there are str- there's a lot of straight up i mean the the metric should not honestly even ever be like are you being retro the metric should just be like did you write a good song you know
4: there are so many
5: great i mean another thing that really influenced chisel especially especially really early on the whole medway scene with billy childish headcoats and all that and the the prisoners the, the prisoners were actually you know i mean they were so explicitly retro this is a wild thing to think about too when you think about how these kind of micro generations of stuff turn over like you know in in 86 or 80 maybe even earlier like 82 they were part of that i guess like the equivalent over here would have been the paisley underground thing with like you know big 60s hair and Mm -hmm. um and stuff and and playing playing retro music which at that time though was only like 14 years old, you know, yeah. it's nuts to think about. I mean, like, I've barely put out three albums in the last 14 years, you know, it's, it's things, <laughs> things turned over a lot. <laughs> things, as quick as things go with the internet now, it seems like actually things turned over a lot more quickly back then. Yeah. So it seemed retro when it was, you know, a little over a decade earlier to be playing 60s music, you know, in the early 80s. Wild.
1: Yeah. I remember, um, I remember all the bands in the nineties that were doing like garage rock and it was all like, it was retro, but it was also so like almost like over the top that it was just really cool. Like the mummies is probably oh, yeah. the band I the most oh, I love the from out here in the Bay area. Yeah. So just like sloppy and like punk rock yeah. and just wild. Yeah. I mean that, like that's, that was stuff was so good.
5: That was great. Yeah. The mummies, I mean, yeah, and then the and what like the mummies led to a whole reappreciation of the Sonics and you know all that North Northwest stuff. It was great. I I was actually um
1: I I was in a garage rock one of those bands briefly in like the late nineties. We were called the Sudsman and um, nice. I the, the 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 singer of that band was super into that music, and he's like asked me if I want to play drums. So I was like, sure. And the gimmick was we played all these old 60s songs and we wore uh, cheap, uh, like, beer cases on our heads. <laughs> like, so Pabst or, yeah. you know. Hootable gold. Any of those. Right. Yeah, exactly. It had to be, ba- like, cheap beer and it had to be, like, one of those, like, uh, 12 can
5: cases. And then that was that was it. That was, that was it. Do you remember red, white, and blue beer? Did you ever have red, white, and blue beer? Oh,
1: no. I don't remember that. Oh,
5: this is, like, you know, this is another, like, so I was yeah like I was straight edge in the late 80s and when I started drinking again it was like I was in college in Indiana and it was all just like you know black label olympia blats hootable gold and all that stuff and there was this there was this stuff called red white and blue that like I want to say it was literally like 99 cents a case <laughs> A case <laughs> I mean, remember this is a long time ago, so the prices, are, you know, were different. But I I remember, um, like the first time I went like to a liquor store after I ha- having started drinking again, and being out in Indiana, where also like you know there were some culture shock you know things for me. I remember going into this this liquor store with a case of red white and blue and i'm walking back out to my car and this guy in a giant pickup truck starts yelling at me and he's like hey
1: hey you looking for a headache
5: and like and i was like and i was still like i was like really really skin heady looking and i was like shit like and i was also like super depressed and like my, like i just had like sunken eyes and i weighed nothing and i had this shaved head and you know big boots on and some dumb t-shirt you know and i was like all right here we go about to get my ass kicked so you know i I put the beer down and i'm like what so i'm like because you know i'm just like he's gonna kick my ass like i might as well like face him while he does it and um and then he he like slowly pulls his car his giant pickup truck over to me and he looks down at me and he goes you're drinking red, white, and blue. You're headed for a headache. And then he like peel, just peels out onto the highway. <laughs> and I was like, like, wow. All right, okay, right on. Well, fair enough.
2: <laughs> Little did you know he was actually the customer
5: service rep for yeah, the company. Exa- that, was, that was their tagline. <laughs> and yeah, funny enough, they made that their tagline. For the, yeah. <laughs> you drinking red, white, and blue? You're looking for a headache. <laughs>
3: thanks so the the pharmacist
1: that starts that's a solo project
5: initially or started as a solo project it started as a me with uh, and a four track like with my own backing tracks project it was i guess concurrent with chisel like late 90s um the first actually i guess the first thing in my head it was a solo project uh until the first thing i actually did which was with um amy farina who's the was the drummer in the warmers at the time and is now in uh the evens with imakai e. And uh yeah, she and I did a a project that was the f- first iteration of the pharmacist where we recorded a bunch of backing tracks and then basically like carried o- karaokeed over our own songs.
1: If it was concurrent, what was the um what was the intention behind starting it? Like what what did you feel like you were hoping to get from it that maybe you weren't getting from Chisel or I
5: think probably part of it was performative, you know, because because Chisel was like a band band, you know, Chisel was like a point at three dudes and wonder if they're in a band, and like yeah, they're in a band, you know, it was (laughs) like, um, and um, and uh, while I I loved that, um, you know, I wanted I wanted to stretch out more, and I I don't think that at that point in time. Like, I couldn't have done something weird and, and like, challenging to the audience. Like, you, also, I mean, again, like, I don't mean to be, like, this might come off as a little self-aggrandizing, but it's really just for context that, like, nobody was doing that back then. Like, nobody was playing with backing tracks. It just was not done. Yeah. And, um, and certainly nobody was lugging around, like, old tape machines to do it with, you know? Like, maybe somebody had, like, a newfangled mini-disc that they'd recorded, you know, something yeah. on it where... We're playing along to it. So it was like, it was actually sometimes challenging. And when I, after the thing with Amy and after I left Chisel and I started doing that for real, I would like, that was performative. You know, that was part of it was the, was the challenge of the performance to like, (laughs) to like make people witness this weird, you know, loner Um, like you know screaming at them along with stuff that he has apparently recorded on this big old reel-to-reel four-track machine you know um it was like i think it was cool but i also recognized that it was strange you know and um that was part of the point though you know was to was to not be in like a normal band for a minute um to do something strange and possibly challenging
1: did you tend to have a good reaction or did people come around at a certain point?
5: It was uh it was always a mix. It was al- always a mix like um I wouldn't play the entire set with backing tracks. I'd I'd pepper it, you know, five or six songs in a 10-12 song set. Um and sometimes it would be great. Sometimes people didn't want to you know, sometimes people just thought it was weird. Uh, sometimes, you know, f- front of house sound people were super psyched. Sometimes they were. Sometimes they were really not psyched. You know, and like the simple act of like trying to get the balance right when they thought they were getting a solo performer of like you know backing tracks was often like off putting to people, <laughs> and um, and that could cause problems. You know, because if the if it wasn't right then it was just weird like if the if the music coming off the tape came out too quiet or too loud then the whole thing just falls apart you know like it really yeah. had to be in that sweet spot of like this is as loud as a band you know or as loud as you know to make it feel you know you feel the bass you feel like you're listening to a band but there's still only this one person in his droid on on stage with him um but if it if it you know crossed 1 dB into too too quiet or too loud it was a total disaster I and mean, people just start yelling like oh, you know, oh dude you're blowing my mind you know blah blah blah
2: do you, do you have any recollection of any shows that were just total train wrecks oh yeah oh absolutely i mean just just take us down a quick little Side path, real
5: quick. I will tell you the story of one of the worst <laughs> nights of my life. One of the worst shows okay. I played. One of the worst nights of my life, um, uh, and it's one of. It's not the. There are others, and there've been a lot of them. So there are a lot others, but this is one of the worst ones. Um, this. So all right. So I chisel broke up slash I quit chisel in like early summer of ninety seven, and. I very quickly started going out and playing solo again, um, largely because uh, other friends of mine who were in bands were touring, were encouraging. You know, they were like, oh, you should just come with us, play some songs. And I was like, okay, cool, you know. Felt good. I'll keep doing it. Um, And I I had done the tape project with Amy, and I was like, this could be a thing that I could do, you know, help me work out ideas like play stuff that i don't feel is going to go over as well solo you know and do all the like stuff that i i knew was going to be challenging about it um so a few months later i think it was maybe september of that same year i had already booked like a week of solo shows um down from dc into the southeast and back and um This was Columbia, South Carolina, and a couple of mod kids showed up, and I was very, very excited about that. You know, couple a couple were lingering there for the for my solo show, but what I didn't know was that um, like this was a Sunday matinee, and this venue had this like ongoing Sunday barbecue thing, where they are literally barbecuing the whole time. And they have a house blues band who plays three sets throughout the day, <laughs> and then I had somehow gotten booked to play between the second and third set,
4: oh hell yeah, and the
5: house blues band <laughs> the house blues band were like local like young i mean it was really um it was really blues hammery, like literally like shirtless dude uh you know playing uh um. Voodoo child, like with his teeth, you know, shirtless white guy playing voodoo child with his teeth <laughs> on his guitar um and uh and luckily, you know, there were a couple of couple of kids there who actually did come to see me um there were this this nice young mod couple whose faces I will go to my grave, remembering kindly um they were very sweet, and I was very happy to see them there um there was a dude from a um another hardcore band that I knew who shall remain nameless because of what comes later in the story um (laughs) but he was also very nice and he was really helping me out um at first and uh you know he was he was like you got a place to stay i was like no i'm not sure what i'm gonna do you know i'm playing at chapel hill tomorrow figure it out he's like well you should come stay with me you know like i i just got this box of um he just got a box of vhs uh tapes of shows you know there's like punk shows from you know somewhere on in the back of flip side or whatever you know back then and um he's like we'll watch some you know watch some bad brains videos and whatever it's like this sounds great everything's going great okay so this is a weird situation like there's this blues band in this barbecue but you know like some people showed up and everybody's being really nice and i'll have my set and um i get up there and i go to sound check and um uh you know we get the level to where i think it sounds good and everybody and it was like there was the venue and then they were barbecuing out back so most people had gone out back for while i was sound checking didn't hear the tape thing um and then the way that i had this set up was like i was i would play this song and it would descend into this like echoplex like tape delay noise and then i would whip around and i would theatrically hit the play button on the big giant tape machine and the drums that i had recorded were supposed to come in big and loud boom 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 good 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 and it was this humasacala song that i was covering at, at the time like this like noise version of this this humasacala song and it was like when it worked it was again like it was great but somehow the i don't know like somebody put a drink on the soundboard <laughs> but like the fader on the tape machine let's just say like it got pushed down far enough that like i didn't even try to play the song you know it was just like i'm like oh, I theatrically whip around i press play and you just hear like peep, peep, peep. Oh, <laughs> and i was like all right you know what? i'm not even gonna argue i'm not even gonna argue my way through this so i just pressed i stopped it i started the next song and i immediately got heckled by someone who was who who actually said dude you're blowing my mind man <laughs> <laughs> and i was like oh fuck here we go and i just tried to ignore it i mean we actually had some back and forth so i don't even really like i i i don't remember entirely what you know what i said to give it back to him probably like the the big the big from stage line back then was like oh yeah i remember my first beer too ha ha, ha. you know like, so i probably threw some version of that And then it was just like, you know, it just kind of, it was just an embarrassing set from then on, you know, but the mod couple stayed, the guy from the hardcore band stayed, you know, so I played the set afterwards. I go to get paid and the promoter who had actually been really friendly to me all day. um, I had a $100 guarantee. And at this point in time, like I didn't usually get any kind of guarantee, but I felt like Hundred dollars was pretty reasonable, and um he goes. He's standing there, and I recognize by the voice that he's standing there with the guy who had been heckling me. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, oh hey, hey, yeah. So I guess I'm gonna go, you know, before the and the third set of the blues band you know, if that's okay. He's like, oh yeah, that's fine. He's like, here, I got fifty bucks for you. I was like, well, I had a hundred dollar guarantee. And he's like, "Well, I got 50 bucks for you." I was like, "Well, I had a $100 guarantee." <laughs> you know, we're going back and forth and back and forth like this. This was a period in my life when I was this is not fun or funny kids who are listening to this right now. Like this is actually not a good way to be, but I was um I was often like I didn't have a lot of concern for my physical self and I was often daring the universe to like drop a piano on my head basically you know and and um and uh so i was like i was ready to once again like the i mean we're now we're developing a whole new theme this is a totally different podcast now but like the like the guy (laughs) in the red and blue beer pickup truck like i was just like i'm ready to get my ass kicked over this like i had a hundred dollar guarantee like this is this is where i'm this is where i'm planting my flag like and then this (laughs) other this other guy who had been heckling me starts get starts inserting himself into the conversation like he's and apparently I guess he was in some band that was like kind of getting big on the scene. He's like, look, man, I know how it is. You're out here driving around, you know, trying to live the rock and roll life, but it ain't always like that. You know, you got it. And it just like starts trying to like <laughs> give me this speech about like how I got to go the flow. and you know, And I'm getting closer and closer and closer to him. He's getting closer and closer and closer to me, and it's a, like just about to devolve into a horrible fight, uh, which I'm sure I would have walked out very far on the worst end of. When the guy from the hardcore band just like basically scoops me up and like runs me out, to which for him I'm eternally grateful for that as well. <laughs> and then like you know we like we get in his car, we laugh about it, we drive back to his place, um we stay up to like four in the morning, like watching all these, like, just, I, 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 you know, he just got some crazy score. It was like, you know, he had like some old, you know, some like 80, 1982, like descendants shows and all this old bad brain stuff. And it was like, it was great. We had a great time at six in the morning. He woke me up and told me I had to leave the house. I was like, what? (laughs) He's like, yeah, I forgot. Uh, you know, my girlfriend works nights and she doesn't like me have people staying over. I was like, what i i I did you you could have told me that before we stayed up till four in the morning or before you invited me over to sleep you know like ah so i got up i was like all right fine you know like i i get in in my car and i'm like where am i supposed to go now chapel hill I drive just like I'll just drive to Chapel Hill so I get you know I'm in Chapel Hill by like nine you know (laughs) and like and um, (laughs) I go to the address that I had and it's a bookstore and the there's like a you know a a a chalk uh sign out front and it says on it you know open mic night tonight and I was like oh fuck you you gotta be fucking kidding me he's like I'm gonna have to play at an open mic night at a bookstore and <laughs> pass the hat around you know <laughs> so i called this was also the the first tour in my life that i ever had someone else book for me um and it's the only time i've had anybody but my current booking agent um who who i've worked with now for like 20 years or something but um i called this guy from chicago i knew who had offered to book the tour for me and i was like hey uh mike I was like, yeah, I'm at the venue in Chapel Hill and it's a bookstore and it says that there's an open mic night tonight. Is that was that like left on the street from last night? Or, you know?
1: <laughs>
5: and he's like, oh, I don't know. Let me see. And I was like, here's what here's what I'm gonna do. Cause then I had a day off and then I had a show in DC. And I was like, so I might, you know, I could just go back to DC. And I was like, I'm gonna like go get a coffee and hang out for an hour, and then I'm gonna call you back. And in that time if you have found a single person in Chapel Hill that you know is like actually excited to see me play, I will stay here and play this show. If not, I'm just going home. And I called him back in an hour and I was like, got anybody? And he was like, yeah, no. I was like, all right, bye. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Tour over, drive home. Done. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow.
1: I feel like I could go on, but I mean, I don't know. I don't like try. I try not to have these be too much longer than an hour and a half. So, well, let's, let's talk one. Give me one more ska thing to talk about at least. (laughs) Well, okay. I have a little question for you. I'm curious when I, when I invited you on this podcast, you had said that you wanted to do it because you had spent so many years in the wilderness as a torchbearer for certain things, i.e. Ska. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious in that moment, what did you mean? Do you mean that you've
5: been waving the flag for ska for years when nobody else cared about it? Uh in 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 parts of the world, obviously ska never dies and you know, ska continues. But you know, like I mean, we talked about this a little bit with when you asked me about uh, you know, why and how I wrote Rude Boys. I think that that that, yeah. that dovetails with this. And then I also hinted at it when I implied that. You know, nobody listened to Thin Lizzy you know, before. before you know, sure. Before I started doing all these shuffle songs. But um you know, neither of those things are obviously entirely true, but but it was my experience out, out on the road night after night after night after night. Um yeah, like I said, that, you know, a lot of people had either sort of forgotten uh about the very idea of Rude Boys, let alone the specials specifically And we're very psyched to be reminded about it, you know, or we're kind of flippantly disdainful about it. And, you know, I write I write those people off then because they're not my
1: people. (laughs) I mean, by the mid 2000s, I mean, you're you're you're, we're at a place in in pop culture where bands like these post-punk bands are playing and, and they're getting outed by Spin Magazine for having been in a ska band
5: six years earlier. right that was like a badge of yeah that's right that was like a badge of dishonor like oh so-and-so was in a ska yeah. band before blah you know yeah that's right i totally forgot about that that was a whole era the guy from the guy from bush uh, you know the guy from the radiohead like, they were in ska yeah.
1: but the bravery and the killers i think those they they actually had a public beef ah. where they were like going at each other and they're like you're in a ska band and they're like you were too. Oh my
5: god. So, wow.
1: And so that's the same time period that you write the song, which is interesting. I thought nothing to do with that, but it's just yeah. interesting.
5: Yeah, that is interesting. I it, yeah, it speaks to it speaks to where ska was at in at least like the you know, popular culture. That's
1: one of your most popular songs, right? Yeah,
5: yeah. Interesting. Probably number number 2 or 3. <laughs> Yeah, um I mean I think that, you know, like I am happy I'm happy that like musically it 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 connects in a way that scratches a lot of different itches to use a gross metaphor also, but um <laughs> you know, cuz it's like there is that like Thin Lizzy shuffle and like Chugga um you know, Boys Are Back in Town like downstroking verse part of it that I think, you know, connected with people who hadn't been hearing a lot of that. There's the subject matter and the fact that that same exact shuffle beat, uh, flows very easily into ska. I mean, it's the original ska beat. You know, before it was like a ever became like a four on the floor again, like do the dog kind of thing. It was the blue beat shuffle kind of thing. You know,
1: have you ever done a straight up ska song, like uh, for with one of your bands or like well.
5: that's a good qu- you know animal crackers once did an entire set as scanimal crackers where we just made everything. <laughs> we made everything ska but um but in terms of a serious straight ska song no i mean i've done straight reggae um yeah no um in between i did this band called the sin eaters for a little while that was um a, a bit of a crustier you know punk band um after chisel before the pharmacist really started you know t- taking off um and that was i i put a lot of reggae influence back into that and that was uh, more upbeat though like it was um it it approached ska at times but it was explicitly not ska you know it was reggae punkish yeah you know? all right okay well now now we know what you need to do next Believe me, I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about it a lot. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's tough because, the you know, the other thing about ska is that, like, ska to my ear, like, I, every time I think about doing something ska now, I, I, I gotta be careful because for it to work in my ear, it has to have certain um production values that, you know, are, are kind of antithetical to modern hi-fi, <laughs> uh, music, which is, I think, you know, in some cases, and certainly not in all cases, but in some cases, like, has pushed me away from a lot of third and newer wave ska bands is like the, the sparkliness of it. Um, mm. I like the, I like the trashiness of, um, of the older sounds and, uh, And yet, you know, like that wouldn't necessarily be hard to achieve, but I also like, I think if I, if I ever go fully into those waters again, like, I don't want it to be coy, you know, like I don't want it to be um, cheap. Like I want it to be real. So I, so I have, I would have to give it some time to bake, you know, and, and be a, be a real thing. Yeah.
1: I mean, I'm sure it would be, if you, if you ever got to that point, I, I'm sure it would be great. And I'm sure that people would dig it, Well, you know, especially if you, if you execute it the way you're describing, you know, kind of access that kind of trashier sound of it, you know, that kind of raw or, yeah. you know,
5: two Tony stuff. I appreciate your faith. And I believe that your faith, <laughs> your faith in this as yet non-existent project may eventually bring it into being. <laughs> that would
2: be amazing.
1: Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the show wherever you normally download podcasts. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. It's at In Defense of Scott. You can also sign up for my newsletter at aaroncarns.substack.com. You will get the podcast sent directly to your inbox every Wednesday. In Defense of Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co host Adam Davis has a great band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And on that note, we leave you by saying Ska now more than ever. Thank you.